Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the works of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing, man? Hey, uh, I'm great. And this is, uh, you may have noticed the playtime is going to be quite a bit shorter on this one. They're typically used to for us windbags going on and on about the great works of literature. And that's because this is a special little kind of bonus episode that is going to serve as a kind of preface and backgrounder for a session Claude and I are doing at the Intelligent Speech Virtual Conference. That's right. Uh, if you all remember last year, we were really thrilled to participate in uh, the Intelligent Speech Conference, and we're doing it again this year. Uh, and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what we're going to talk about then. Uh, and so stay tuned. We're going to we're going to kind of we're going to give a little bit of. Um, well, Claude is really going to introduce me to the world of uh, Borges, who I had not read before this, and uh, I've just given away the topic of our little uh, of our own session. But uh, the great thing about intelligent speech, though, is that there's so much going on. Like it's it's certainly not going to be just us, and even there's going to be more than just a cannonball session. Claude, you have something else you're doing, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a panel with uh, Kevin Stroud from the History of English podcast, Dan Morris from Tracing the Path, and Ray Belli from Words for Granted. It's going to be called Lost Connections in Language and Literature. And my part is we're all sort of looking at uh, – how do I put this? Well, lost connections in language and literature, either <laughs> moments or places or things that we're not quite sure how they work or what they were or how this operates or you know, just sort of like those great mysteries. In, in terms of either language, right, like yeah. spoken, written words, or literature. I'm taking over the literature aspect of that, and so I, I guess to give you all a teaser. All right. John Milton, uh, as you may recall from our episode on Paradise Lost, was part of the Puritan government, and he was somewhere between head of the press, head censor, head propagandist. He was the guy who basically did communications for the Puritan government, more or less. He was completely blind by that point, and he needed help. So he enlisted the help of this very efficient bureaucrat who was not necessarily committed to the Puritan government, but was very good at clerical stuff and also a poet on the side. That was Andrew Marvell. Uh, 
Marvell got overwhelmed with work, so he had to hire this fresh young uh, scholar right out of undergrad who also happened to dabble in verse, John Dryden. The oh. three greatest poets of their respective generations <laughs> met in a room together for an extended period of time, uh, like over, I believe it was months, and we have no idea what they said to each other. So I'm going to be talking about <laughs> just this great, strange, weird mystery. What were the, these guys talking about? How did they address the work? What kind of work were they, they doing? How did they relate to each other? What was their relationship with each other? It's kind of like this fascinating mystery at the heart of yeah. the long 18th century. So that's yes. my contribution to Lost Connections in Language and Literature. But yeah, Daniel and that's I terrific. <laughs> that are, sounds fascinating. Uh, I hadn't heard what your topic was going to be until just now, listeners. <laughs> so it's, I've got five minutes to sum that all up. But <laughs> Daniel and I are going to be undergoing uh, an extraordinary act of perversion. The uh, The theme of the conference this year is going to be escape. And we decided to take on Jorge Luis Borges because the reigning metaphor for most of his fictions, or at least the fictions that are extraordinarily well known, is the labyrinth. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. that's our part in this thing. We're going to be looking at ways that he attempts to escape the labyrinth throughout different uh, types of writing that he does. But Daniel, can you tell us a little bit more about who's going to be at the conference and what kind of stuff we'll be hearing about? Yeah, sure. So uh, Intelligent Speech is going to take place on April 24th. Uh, at beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or 3 p.m. Uh, London time. I don't know enough about Great Britain to know whether that's the same as Greenwich Mean Time, but I imagine it probably is. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, it's going to be terrific. There's such an incredible lineup. Uh, we will be so we're doing our sessions. There's going to be appearances from David Crowther of History of England, Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, Rudyard Lynch of What If, the Alternative History Podcast, and there are over forty other terrific podcasters, content creators who are contributing. It's awesome. There's going to be a full 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams. So no matter what you're into, if you're a curious person, you know, I, I don't think we really have any other kind of listener. You're a curious person. There's going to be something for you. There's going to be uh, someone talking about something that you're really going to get a kick out of. Um, and one of the best parts about it is the way that you get to interact with the presenters. That was the most fun for me last year. Uh, oh, that was Claude great. Was, it was, it was terrific. We were able to answer questions live. We had a great, uh, assistant for, from the intelligent speech staff who was getting questions from, uh, from the folks in the audience. And that was just super terrific. And that's a big part of what the intelligent speech conference is all about. Um, so tickets are $30. That's $30 for that full day of content with all these terrific creators. But you can have a ticket for, uh, $20 as an early bird special if you sign up before March 24. Uh, now I know guys, that's kind of, uh, we're dropping that, uh, this sort of promotion a little, uh, a little close to that. We apologize for that. But if you go ahead, if you're, you know, Johnny on the spot, you'll still be able to grab that early bird special ticket for $20. But even after the 24th of March, tickets are still only $30. 
I mean, I think that's, I think that's a terrific deal. That's what, you know, two tickets to a movie and you get all day getting to talk with people who are really passionate about the stuff they're interested in and learning all sorts of stuff. I mean, sounds like a dream to me, but, um, we're going to give you all a special promo code also. So after we're done kind of giving a background on what we're going to be talking about, we're going to hop back in, touch base with you guys about intelligent speech. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to tell you again, it's a terrific thing to be a part of. And we're going to give you a special promo code that, uh, not only will get you a discount, but also goes to support the cannonball specifically. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, with all that, Claude, who is this Borges guy? How are we profaning his work? <laughs> all right. Well, to, to be honest, the the labyrinth metafictional aspects of Borges aren't the complete Borges, and there's a really strong argument to be made that his much is his work is much more complicated than just labyrinths and mirrors and sort of pseudo magical realism. Mm-hmm. The he he tried to do for Buenos Aires what Joyce did for Dublin in a lot of ways. But that's not exactly what we're going to be talking about. Oh, throw this in there. He was also a pretty fantastic poet and essayist on top of that. So I think outside of Spanish language literature, he's sort of known as the postmodern meta-narrative fictions guy. Within his home language, well, if he had a home language, and I'll get to that in a bit, he's he's much more complicated, more sort of fleshed out in certain ways, very, very well-rounded. Extraordinarily erudite, despite being really something of an autodidact. So yeah. I guess that's kind of like my, my broad caveat for how to approach Borges. If you're approaching him just as the... The Pomo Borges, you're missing a lot of the the depth and richness of the work. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know more about that depth and richness, let me recommend Edwin Williamson's Borges: A Life. If you're an English speaker, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, then you're most likely native English speaker. If you have any Spanish, I'm sh- I I cannot recall the the Spanish biographies. I believe there are some, but uh, Williamson's uh, Borges biography is the sort of best available in. English. Okay. That's also where I've drawn most of my information. Mm-hmm. Though, <laughs> listener, beware. My copy of Williamson's Life of Borges is in my office in Queens at the moment. I'm nowhere near Queens at the moment. I can't get back <laughs> on campus. So, and that's due to like COVID restrictions, all kinds of other logistical stuff. So I, I'm kind of drawing this from, from memory, whatever botched memory I have. So bear with me. If I get some of the facts a little bit wrong, then hopefully I, I will not become too much of an oaf in the eyes of the spectator. All right. So Borges was born in 1899 and he died in 1986. So he lived the 20th century. Yeah. His father was a lawyer who didn't want his his kids raised with a kind of orthodox education, which in Argentina would have been basically sort of like a church education, a Catholic education. So he was mm-hmm. kind of homeschooled, hodgepodge, cobbled together whatever his father could sort of work to teach him. His father's mother was English. And his father grew up speaking English in the house. So it was this interesting situation where his father, his, his second language was Spanish. (laughs) 
even though he was yeah. living in Argentina. Well, but yeah. I think that's um, that's kind of I wouldn't I, maybe not typical, but that's not uncommon in Argentina, as I recall. No. Like especially in Buenos Aires, it was a a kind of hub for immigrants. Uh, yeah. So the, I know there was a well, even in one of the stories that uh, that I read. Uh, it, you know, it mentions, uh, you know, someone retaining some Italian sort of accent or pronunciation of their Spanish. Yeah. I, I have, uh, a South American friend who says Argentinians are really just Italians, but don't tell them that. Uh, <laughs> no offense meant to any Argentinian listeners. Or uh, any I'm Italian not, listeners. Or Italian listeners. I, I have no, uh, intention of getting into, um, those kinds of cloudy <laughs> difficulties. All right. So anyway, uh, if I remember correctly, this might be apocryphal, but I believe young Jorge Luis Borges, Georgie, as he was known in the family, also spoke English in the house and then Spanish outside. Uh, that might be apocryphal. I might be misremembering something, but anyway. So his, his father, his English grandmother was pretty close to him. All right. So on his mother's side, he was related to some of the heroes of the Argentinian War of Independence. So his mother sort of filled his mind with this great, you know, sort of heroic mythology. Mm-hmm. And at Intelligent Speech, we'll talk some more about this kind of duality that runs throughout a lot of his work. And I, I kind of want to save that till then because some of the stories we're going to read then deal more with this kind of I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Binary back and forth in the way he navigates binaries. Anyway, uh, so he's got that kind of lurking in the back. His father was a sort of wannabe writer. His father had literary uh, aspirations, and they never really amounted to a whole lot. But Mm -hmm. he had a large library and sort of encouraged the kids in uh, a literary direction. At the age of nine, Borges translated Wilde's Happy Prince from English into Spanish, and they had to put his father's name on it in order to get it published. All right, I'm going to go back and say that again. At the age of nine, Borges (laughs) translated Wilde's Happy Prince from English into Spanish. Wow. Okay, a a precocious kid. Um, I I think I was mastering Super Mario Brothers at the age of nine. I I can't imagine (laughs) even reading Wilde's Happy Prince, let alone translating Uh, it. I I am recalling the uh, X-Men fan fiction that I was writing (laughs) 
for my fourth grade uh, writing assignments. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think I would be up to that either. Yeah. He also read Cervantes in English translation first, which is going to play <laughs> into huh. one of the things that we see when we talk about Pierre Menard. His lens for language and literature is it's kind of strange. He he does seem to view, at least at some points, language as a lens into something, but the lens can absolutely change the experience of the thing, so it becomes a new thing altogether. Because one of the ways that Borges treats literature is as a labyrinth. This is where I think Bloom actually really gets something right. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the Western canon... And, and so much of his other writing is all about the anxiety of influence and, and, you know, you can never escape the precursor and all this other kind of gibberish. I, I tend not to agree with Bloom, but here I sort of do because one of the things that keeps coming up in Borges again and again is this idea that <clears throat> literature itself is this kind of maze you get lost in. And mm, if yeah. you're that well-rounded at that early an age, then you begin to see further and faster. And you can see how everything is related back to everything else, which is related back to everything else, which is related back to everything else. And it becomes its own kind of maze. I, I sort of get where he's coming from there. Mm-hmm. All right. So he uh, – he was educated abroad. He he sort of had this weird education in Buenos Aires. And then his father, uh, for a couple of different reasons, wanted to take them to Europe. So he visited Spain. He sort of comes into contact with the ultraist and surrealist stuff sort of early on. Mm-hmm. He does some kinds of formal schooling in Switzerland. So he's got his English. He's got his Spanish, of course. He's getting some French and some German thrown in there. So he's one of those, you know, modernist multilinguists. I mean, think about Joyce, Pound for better and for worse, Elliot for mm-hmm. better and for worse, uh, Beckett, def- <clears throat> definitely. Uh, you know, Beckett wrote primarily in French after a certain point in his career because Beckett, when he was in kindergarten, started learning French. But Beckett also was fluent in German, Italian, knew enough Spanish to be able to translate it for money. You know, so that seems to be one of these traits uh, among the modernists, the early 20th century writers, this kind of multilingual polyglot approach to literature. And Borges definitely had it. All right. Yeah. So they return to Buenos Aires when he's in his early 20s, and he's kind of an autodidact and kind of not, because he's had some formal schooling, but he doesn't have all the credentials. And so he's kind of got yeah. a chip on his shoulder, right? Okay. He begins writing poetry, and that's sort of where he first tries to make inroads into the Argentinian literary establishment. Well, I guess he already did that at age nine. But he sort of (laughs) tries to start establishing himself as a poet. And he also becomes known in in Buenos Aires as a writer of essays and a literary critic. So he's writing, he's dabbling in sort of weird metaphysics and philosophy. He's dabbling in literary criticism. I believe he even writes a review of King Kong. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, he he was fascinated by the arts wherever they took him. And for the most part, he really seems to have become a big fish in a very small pond, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Spanish literature or Spanish language literature on the world scene, uh, especially South American literature until the Latin American boom, was kind of – it didn't have a huge place. 
I mean, even Spanish literature, you know, Lorca and the sort of generation of surrealists and things, they make a huge splash. But it wasn't until Borges and the Boom that Latin American literature really gets taken seriously. Well, he he starts dabbling in something that's kind of like fiction. He writes mm-hmm. this thing in the 30s called The Universal History of Iniquity. That's the, the name of it that uh, Hurley gives. I'm, I'm using Her, uh, Andrew Hurley's translation of the collected fictions for what we're doing tonight. Mm-hmm. The universal history of iniquity is it, – it, it's its really strange. Some of it is fiction. Some of it is not. A lot of it blends um, narration and invention to create these kinds of fictive biographies of actual people. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it's, it's an act of creative nonfiction, but it also – makes things up and you can see that he's he's playing with i guess the way that narration and the drive towards narration creates a kind of structure that may not be let's say archaeologically accurate but intellectually (laughs) sound yeah okay yeah all right so the short version goes like this he slips and falls and hits his head (laughs) And uh, he, while he's recovering, he nearly dies of sepsis. He gets an infection and he nearly dies. Uh, His father had died, uh, I think, earlier that year. And he's laying in the hospital bed. He basically thinks his career is over and his life has come to an end because he's like, okay, even if I do recover from this, what, what is it going to be? What am I going to do? I'm, I'm kind of a no one. So for fun and just to amuse himself, he writes Pierre Maynard, author of Don Quixote. <laughs> okay. Pierre Maynard, author of Don Quixote. Do you want to attempt to describe it, Daniel? The uh, oh, I'm sorry. Say again. There was a big clap of thunder actually outside. Oh, There's okay. uh, some storms rolling through my part of the world. Uh, what was your yeah. question? Sorry. Oh, I was saying, do you want to attempt to describe Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote? Um, <laughs> I, uh, that's not one of the ones I got. To. <laughs> well, it's okay. I'll describe it for you. In I'm Pierre very Menard, sorry. Author, uh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, just, I should explain for the audience there uh, that I uh, the I thought I was fully equipped at, at my local library, you know, my place of work to uh, get any Borges that I needed. I did not anticipate that uh, there was a big reorganizing going on in our uh, sort of uh, you know adult fiction collection, so that the Borges collections that we did have are in the uh, basically in in the big mending bin in tech services being processed to be moved <laughs> to a different collection. So uh, I had to rely on a more limited selection of what we. Had already in hardcover, and so there are a number of selections, Claude, that I was not actually able to get my hands on in time to record this. <laughs> well, that's okay because have you read Don Quixote? Of course, I have. Yes, uh, yeah, astute yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. to the show would uh, would call that uh, we did indeed read it, enjoyed it very much. Well, Pierre Maynard, author of Don Quixote, is about uh, an early 20th century Parisian surrealist who wants to write Don Quixote. Now, he doesn't want to pretend to be Cervantes and live the life of Cervantes in order to produce the work mm-hmm. because that would be too easy. Uh-huh. What he wants to do as a 20th century author is rewrite the thing word for word. 
and he uh-huh. gets a couple of long passages done, and that's the genius of it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's really a joke. It's it's written as a review. Yeah. A, a oh review wow. Of this work or an overview yeah. of this guy's work. But the the whole gist of it is that he is trying not to live as Donkey as as Cervantes and write the thing. He is trying to write the thing from scratch living in the 20th century. And so yeah. the the gist of it really comes down to this reviewer, this imaginary Borges reviewer, <laughs> comparing a section of Cervantes' Don Quixote with Pierre Maynard's Don Quixote. So he says, it is a revelation to compare the Don Quixote of Pierre Maynard with that of Miguel de Cervantes. Cervantes, for mm-hmm. example wrote the following, part one, chapter nine. Truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. This catalog of attributes, written in the 17th century and written by the ingenuous layman, Miguel de Cervantes, is mere rhetorical praise of history. Menard, on the other hand, writes, Truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present, and the future's counselor. History, the mother of truth. The idea is staggering. Maynard, a contemporary of William James, defines history not as a delving into reality, but as the very fount of reality. Historical truth for Maynard is not what happened. It is what we believe happened. The final phrase, exemplar and advisor to the present and the future's counselor, are brazenly pragmatic. Okay. (laughs) The whole point is that the context... (laughs) of Cervantes writing this line in Don Quixote means one thing. The context of someone in the 20th century writing these lines means something else entirely. But the words are the exact same damn things. You follow? Yeah, yeah. You, you build uh, an understanding of what the thing means. You build an understanding of what the thing means based on your own particular contextual framework right? But yeah. there's no getting out of the fact that these are the exact same words. Maynard, in his own weird way, is sort of trapped in this labyrinth of Don Quixote. <laughs> um, you're just going to keep repeating the same works again and again and again and again and again, no matter if you're trying to avoid doing so or not trying to avoid doing so. There's a way in which I think Bloom... In his, I guess, establishment of revisionary ratios and all this other sort of anxiety of influence stuff, yeah, basically just reiterates Borges. Whether you make a radical move not to be like the thing that came before, or whether you make a radical move absolutely to ape the thing that came before, yeah. you have to deal with the fact that the thing came before. And for Borges, everything has already come before. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Pierre Minard. Literature is a labyrinth. All right. Hmm. Now, there's this other way in which Borges thinks about, I guess, epistemology being a labyrinth. So hmm. he, he writes a story called Tlun Ukbar Orbis Tertius. Uh, this Borges narrator, this... <clears throat> 
narrator, who presumably is Borges, is having dinner with a friend, an actual friend of his, uh, Bioy Casares. They had rented a house together, and one night they have dinner. This is archaeological fact. They did do this. (laughs) And he says at one point, uh, the conjunction of a mirror and an encyclopedia caused his friend to say that, you know, in the uh, uh, among the heresiarchs of Ukbar, mirrors and copulation are abominable, for they multiply the number of mankind. So this mm. is this weird kind of Gnostic heresy. Yeah. And Borges thinks that uh, Bioy sort of made it up, and he says, you know, I, I saw that in the Encyclopedia. It's sort of some ripped-off copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica that mentions, you know, what they thought in Ukbar. And so they go and try to find the encyclopedia in the house, and there's no Ukbar, and Borges thinks that Bioy made it up and is sort of like trying to save face. Yeah. The next day, Bioy comes by with his copy of that same encyclopedia, except it has extra pages, one of which has a whole entry on Ukbar. Oh, yeah. Thus begins this sort of... Uh, bibliographic detective hunt for other evidence of Ukbar. And they track down sort of bits and pieces of things all over until they finally discover that Ukbar and uh, this it's part of this whole invented world. Uh, there was this so, uh, sort of southern planter who seems like uh, one of the archons out of Gnostic cosmology, one of those sort of like demon characters, yeah, has uh, bequeathed all of his fortune to this conspiratorial group, which began as sort of something like the Rosicrucians, who are working on developing this ideal world. So this guy claims that in America, we've already had that. We've invented a world and the new world. Let's invent a universe. And so it's this weird fallen universe that's this total system with its own language, its own metaphysics, its own ontology and epistemology, its own everything. And slowly over time, this underground narrative becomes more and more and more known and starts intruding due to this conspiratorial group into reality until it becomes the reality. Yeah. It's sort of like how a conspiracy theory takes hold and becomes the reality. Okay. I yeah, that's um, I don't know who amongst our listeners uh, have ever read Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco, uh, but uh, he sounds extremely indebted, and I'm sure Mr. Eco would himself say he's extremely indebted to Borges when it oh, comes yeah. to that particular novel. Yeah, well, I, it's sort of okay. We know who invented the QAnon conspiracy theory. Yeah. Ron Watkins. <laughs> it, it, it comes down to that. It can't really be anybody else. And maybe he had a co-conspirator who was this uh, sort of neo-Nazi fascist in, in South Africa. But he invented it and threaded it along in order to get hits to his dark web website. The yeah. end. Yeah. It's been exposed. Did that dissuade anybody? Right. No. Yeah, it has uh, right. It has it has a life and reality of its own. So um, yeah, what Borges does in Tulum Ukbar Orbis Tertius is really shows how a totalitarian 
epistemology can take over and change reality the the framework can shift so to the point that you cannot think outside of that framework anymore and he was writing this in the 30s uh, or into the late 30s early 40s as nazism and you know stalinist soviet totalitarianism were really taking over and I, I really think that's what he's talking about in there, but it's another labyrinth. Epistemology can be another labyrinth when mm-hmm. your, your total framework for understanding the world has become so systematized that it can't allow any accident. Then you've basically moved into a whole different realm, a whole different reality, right? Hmm. Yeah. So that's another one of the labyrinths that he he really sort of establishes, right? Okay. So then, in um, in uh, the circular ruins. Now this is a fun one. It's it's a really really short one, and it sort of seems to take place in some kind of mythic time or space, where sort of some strange man in a canoe emerges off the river. In and basically shores up amongst these strange, well, circular ruins, this kind of maze yeah. where he goes in, lights a fire, and begins the process of dreaming a man into life. And so while he lays down and sleeps, he dreams this human being into existence, and night after night, he adds more and more and more until he fully fleshes out this human who then gets up and goes and tries to do the same to lay down, dream, and create another human. And that's when the original dreamer has the sudden realization that he is the dream of another creator. Yeah. Well, that was... uh I loved that story. That was actually the first of the assigned ones that I read. And um, I, th- I think I told you that the I read that story and then that night had a dream that I was dreaming a man into reality. <laughs> so it was very uh, – I was very affected by that. But that one was 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 terrific in that the, um, the, you know, the first dreamer took great pains thinking about how humiliating it would be for his, his you know, ex nihilo created man to realize that he was just a figment of another person's imagination. He went to great lengths to obscure that and, and, and make sure he would never find out. Um, yeah. Just because he was convinced it would be such a humiliation. And I, I, that was kind of, that was kind of the first, you know, clue that just like, well, how would you know that? What would, you know, <laughs> what would make you conclude that? It was very, I don't know. That was, a, that was an excellent uh, recursive story. Uh, oh, yeah. That uh, is absolutely labyrinthine <laughs> in, absolutely. That, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the last one that I really want to talk about tonight is Borges and I. And mm-hmm. this one is so short that if I can find it in in my copy, then I'll read the whole thing. But that's a big if. I really should have marked it out first. Uh, but it's it's a really, 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 really short piece. It's basically one paragraph. It's Borges, the other one that things happen to. I walk yeah. through Buenos Aires and I pause mechanically now, perhaps, to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner door. News of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name in a list of academics or in some biographical dictionary. My taste runs to hourglasses, maps, 18th century typefaces, etymologies, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Robert Louis Stevenson. 
Borges shares those preferences, but in a vain sort of way that turns them into the accoutrements of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that our relationship is hostile. I live, I allow myself to live, so that Borges can spin out his literature and that literature is my justification. I willingly admit that he has written a number of sound pages, but those pages will not save me, perhaps because the good in them no longer belongs to any individual, not even to that other man, but rather to language itself or to tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed, utterly and inevitably, to oblivion, and fleeting moments will be all of me that survives in that other man. Little by little, I have been turning everything over to him, though I know the perverse way he has of distorting and magnifying everything. Spinoza believed that all things with uh, all things wish to go on being what they are. Stone wishes eternally to be stone and tiger to be tiger. I shall endure in Borges, not in myself, if indeed I am anybody at all. But I recognize myself less in his books than in many others, or in the tedious strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him, and I moved on from the mythologies of the slums and outskirts of the city to games with time and infinity, but those games belong to Borges now, and I shall have to think up other things. So my life is a point-counterpoint, a kind of fugue, and a falling away, and everything winds up being lost to me, and everything falls into oblivion, or into the hands of the other man. I'm not sure which of us it is that's writing this page. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. The act of writing itself becomes a labyrinth. It becomes a maze. It becomes a trap. And there's, if anybody at all is interested in this, uh, there's a poem called Borges and I written by the poet Frank Bedart, where Bedart sort of takes Borges' idea that you become the writing and amplifies it. Because for Bedart, you essentially develop an archive of the self and then change based on that archive of the self and constantly have to keep revising yourself as you re-encounter yourself in that archive. So there's no way out of the writing. The only way yeah. out of the writing is more writing, but you can't even tell <laughs> if you are the writer or the written anymore once it's passed. Yeah. yeah. So these are, are some of the ways that you can think about – Borges writing a labyrinth, being fascinated by these these figures and these structures that lead you along all these different paths, along all these different ways, often leading to dead ends where you turn back around. The original idea of the labyrinth goes back to the the place that was used to house or trap the Minotaur. Mm -hmm. And there's always that sense that the labyrinth can be a fascinating, intriguing place, but there's also something connected to it, connected to danger. There's, uh, I think it's very, it's very interesting bringing up that kind of dual nature of, uh, of a labyrinth as the word itself is derived from a word known from the Greek, but probably, uh, was adopted from the, uh, aboriginal people of Crete called, uh, or it was a term called labris, which mm. meant the double, he the double headed axe. There was a ceremonial, yeah. it was a very potent and common symbol on oh, Crete. Wow. Uh, so a labris was a, a double headed axe, you know, almost like a Janus face of a, oh, uh, of an yeah. implement meant to split. Uh, and that name is applied to this, this labyrinth, which as you said, both fascinates, you know, one face and, you know, and repels and, and, uh, well, yeah. It's, I've always just felt that's, that's a kind of, that's a fascinating way that a, 
a term has survived into our language and is mostly associated with David Bowie now. <laughs> <laughs> well, David Bowie based on MC Escher based on Borges. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's this strange figure that he keeps coming back to and, and other modernists have come back to it. You know, uh, Stephen Daedalus is the primary one that comes to mind in the English language from Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Though Joyce was less fascinated by the act of writing as a labyrinth, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be his major motif, though he plays with that a little bit. But he's more, Joyce is more interested in the craftsman or the maker, or in his terms, the forger. Right, mm-hmm. uh, because for Joyce, the creation of a consciousness in the novel is an act of forgery. It's an act of forging. It's creation and making, but it's also falsifying at the same time. I don't think Borges necessarily takes that route. Yeah. He seems more interested in the way that all the stories kind of fold in on themselves and you essentially keep telling the same story over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that's sort of the fascinating part about Borges himself and also the limitation of a lot of what he does. He kind of tells the story over and over and over and over again. Although there's much more to him than just labyrinths, mirrors, labyrinths, mirrors. Yeah. And that's sort of what we're going to be talking about next time or yeah. at the intelligent speech. <laughs> at the intelligent speech conference, which everyone listening to this, we will be thrilled if you would join us. Uh, we, we don't know uh, our exact time slot yet, but it's going to be on April 24th, beginning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And tickets will be $30 unless... You get under the wire for the early bird special, which ends on 24th of March. So in just a few days uh, from the time this is recorded. Uh, and I mentioned earlier about the uh, promo code. So there'll be when you are making your order, when you're buying your ticket, there will be a field in the uh, in the website. Oh, which I should say is www.intelligentspeechconference, all one word, dot com. Uh, and when you are buying your ticket, there'll be a field for a promo code. Use promo code Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Remember, that's one N in the middle. So Canon, C-A-N-O-N. And not only will you get a discount, but a portion of that will go to support uh, all of us here at the Cannonball, myself, Claude, and producer Josh. So yep. if you feel like supporting the show, then make sure to use the promo code C-A-N-O-N when you buy your ticket for the Intelligent Speech Conference on April 24th. And be sure to buy an early bird special by March 24th. We would be thrilled to have you guys to be able to talk and chat uh, after uh, after our session. Um, it's a really, really cool event that last year was the first time that they did it as a virtual event. And you would not have been able to tell it was the first time. It was a truly just professional, smooth experience. So uh, it is an absolutely uh, well worth your time and treasure to uh, to hop on board. Exactly. And we'll, uh, we'll be so glad to greet you there. And yeah. it'll be fun. So. All right. If you want to hear more about Borges, join us there. And stay tuned in the coming weeks. We're coming back to lyrical ballads and yes. the wild strangeness that that is the rhyme of the ancient mariner. 
I am. I cannot wait. I am thrilled. But all right, y'all. Well, we will uh, see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.